When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the Leadership Strategist. Tonight's guest, three-time winner of Becker's 40 Under 40 Hospital Executives Rising Stars and President of SSM Health, Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital, Stephen Burkhart. Hey, what you drink? Okay, so just when you thought we were calming down, there is no calming down. Uh, I am going to continue to share amazing guests with you, and this is no different. Today's guest is one of the most brilliant people I have met as I step into my nonprofit area, but this guy is making it happen. Mr. Steven Burghardt, come on into the room, man. I am just so excited to have this conversation with you. Welcome to Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. What is going on? Just your average day during a pandemic in the hospital, Galen. Great to see you again. You know, uh, with you helping us out at the hospital, it's always a pleasure. And uh, you're just a great, great leader and a great character. And uh, I always love talking to you. Well, man, I'll tell you, this is going to be amazing because I, I'll tell you, you, you and I have known each other for a little bit. And usually I see you. Uh, and really, really buttoned up, always professional. You always have your stuff together, and you literally know every every statistic, every tactic, every strategy that we ever talk about. You seem to have an encyclopedic memory of all of that. But then, you know, I understand that you're like a bourbon head. You're a rye dude. You've got some jazz chops, and I think you said never judge a book by its cover. So you're just full of surprises. So we're going to, we're going to jump into some of those surprises because I've got, I've got loads of questions for you, but the first question, everyone knows the first question. So I'm going to ask anyway, what you drinking? So my wife actually got me a uh, whistle pig 15 rye for my birthday. And, um, it's just, it's nice and easy and uh, it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful bottle and it's all good. So, uh, and I just thought it was a, it was a nice gift for her to, uh, to give her husband after all. So, so that's, I decided to share with you today, given, um, given it's special to me and this can be a special conversation. Wow. I am, I am absolutely looking forward to that, man. And I, I tell you, I, I, I knew that you were into rye. And so I actually reached for some whistle pig myself. 
So I'm going to hit you with the whistle pig, but I don't have the 15 years. So it's, it's whistle pig 12 year. It's old world cask finish bespoke blend. And, you know, I don't do rye a whole lot. I, I just, I don't go a whole lot, but man, I tell you, when I saw that that was your favorite, I thought that might be what you pull out. So I'm just going to join with you and let's crack this bad boy open. And uh, man, this just, oh my God, the bouquet is just amazing because rise. And oh my gosh. So I'm going to sip on this and I'd love for you to share just a little bit more about your background because the journey has been pretty, you've got, you've had a pretty interesting journey to get to where you are today. I think that's just a great way to get into this conversation. So share a little bit about that journey and uh, let's jump in. Perfect. Appreciation to a guy having it neat too, which is nice way to go there. Uh, so, I mean, basically I, um, I grew up wanting to be a researcher and someone in the lab I worked in was looking at healthcare administration. And uh, even though I didn't have any business background, it really resonated with me, practically speaking, uh, in some ways because of the, the school compared to being in a research lab, but, uh, but it really resonated with me because my mom uh, was a cancer survivor and I grew up in Houston, north of town and um, she went to MD Anderson and just the, how organized they were, I mean, obviously the clinical care that they offered was, was incredible world leading, but the way they organized themselves around her as a human being was really what uh, resonated with me. So number of years later when when this all came up as to what i might do with myself all that kind of added up to, to push me into to healthcare. so i went to trinity university in san antonio and uh, started off with a pretty traditional track left for about three or four years to be a sales guy in a revenue cycle company and um it really was a collection agency that had all these other businesses that they they created and uh, but found my way back into hospitals always missed being in the hospital didn't like being on the road and then kind of got back to the regular old pathway that hospital administrator types take. It's always amazing to me how, you know, at the beginning of our career, we always have this very, very clear, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to, it usually ends with, and then I'm going to make a million dollars. And then once we jump into actually living the life, it's the twists and turns and rarely does it end with making a million, making a million dollars. But it's the twists and turns that always that I always find interesting. What have you learned? Because what you just described was not a straight line. Yeah, it was really unusual for a hospital pathway to to go into sales. And I did it consciously. I read I don't even remember the book now, but I read something where it was talking about uh, you know most CEOs are getting groomed out of the finance side. And uh, it was a real gap for me. Um, I was actually in the Veterans Affairs at the time, which I love the VA and just what a powerful mission that is. And um, But it didn't have the same finance structure that that other health systems had. And I knew I wasn't probably going to be in the VA forever. So it made a lot of sense to me to have sort of that sales and finance background because that's that was really compelling for, for hospital CEOs or for any CEO of any company. And so that, again, being young, I did that. Now, any other year later in my life, I don't think I would have done that to your point. And it was, it put me on a totally different path. My resume didn't make sense to people anymore. And, but I did make it back across. And what, what happened was I, I 
really changed me as a human being in important and positive ways. Um, I had been a you know, hospital minister in the federal government, and then I got to be a hospital administrator in a for-profit setup, and then a county government health system, and, um, and now I'm in a private nonprofit health system. So even though it's the same stuff, it's, it is in some meaningful ways very different. But if I didn't have that middle experience for that three-year window of time when I was a little younger and a little little maybe less insightful about the path that I was going to take, probably wouldn't have ended up where I did. So It's always interesting to me when I read a lot of the books that I'm reading now, they talk about it's actually not a good idea. They don't encourage that you pick one thing and just be focused on that one thing only. Uh, because what they're suggesting that it's it's the diversity of experiences that allow you to pull from those areas that you need to, especially if you're going to be a senior executive. And very rarely anymore do you find senior executives that you know came up in accounting and became a CFO, and because they were a CFO, they ended up in the CEO position. It's, it's usually someone with. Yeah, I came up as an engineer. I went into finance and somehow I landed in marketing and I went overseas and ran this team and came back and now I'm in this seat. How did I get here? Right? Type of a thing. What are some things you, you talked a little bit about how you took that step that seemed like a deviation that you don't know that you would take it today? What did you get from that? What are you pulling from today? because your career wasn't a straight line. I mean, I think we talk routinely when we're presenting about presenting from a position of telling stories, presenting from an engagement in the why, you know, creating a compelling question at the start to get folks interested and all stuff you do in a traditional sales environment, right? I mean, and I always think, um, I mean, you're an operations kind of guy that's who i am too you know by by my origins so to go off and be doing something that is more traditionally associated with extroverts and less operationally minded people was a stretch i got minimal you know probably a day and a half worth of training and i was working from home uh, my boss was in chicago and i was in west palm and i was responsible for the southeastern us and i just i just had the hospital blue book to cold call people and and off i went so um so it took me from being a, sort of a presence in a hospital. I was a chief of staff, essentially, to the hospital president and the VA, to someone that didn't get treated with a lot of respect, right? Cold calling in to finance executives. And so it humbled me in some powerful ways, but it also um, challenged me. And, and the fact that I met that challenge meant a lot to me because I really didn't belong in that space. And uh, once I'd sort of found my feet as an operations person in the VA, and then I found my feet as a, a sort of a sales executive. It just, it gave me a lot of confidence at a time when uh, that's probably what I needed most. And it did give me a, a background, right? I used my experience as a lean operations person to really improve how our work went. And that's part of how, why I was successful. And so I saw that, you know, working with, with real people doing real work and just being a person who was in relationship with them, supporting what they were doing, rather than being someone that came in and told people what to do and asked them to do it and then made them do it if they didn't want to do it. Uh, all that stuff, you know, just was rooted in the truth. That truth has been there for my entire career now. You're starting to hit on so many lessons that I, I'm so glad you're here to talk about because it, it sounds redundant when, when I talk about them. But so many times I see, particularly 
young leaders, but I see some some old leaders as well that will do exactly what you just described uh, that you did earlier. I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to make sure that you do it. And command and control, boy, that's expedient. And you know, as I've said a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, seniority in the organization gives you a certain degree, a certain degree of protection from insubordination, but boy, it doesn't get you the whole lot of it doesn't get you a whole lot of that extra effort. It doesn't help you look around the corners. Talk a little bit about how you learned that lesson, because that's not something that was taught in schools. It, it was taught in schools. You know, once once you become president. You know, everyone kind of bows at your, they bow at your feet and they quake when you, when you mention anything and that's just not reality anymore. So tell me about how you learned that lesson. Well, so early on, I mean, it really came from being in one of the original cohorts of the Institute for Health Improvement, which was Don Berwick, who was a physician, physician led organization, bringing lean into clinical operations improvement. The VA signed up for that. And I was given the opportunity to be champion at the hospital I was at. And I had three different cohorts of groups working on sort of the same work, but from different different effort, right? Um, so instantaneously, I couldn't be in charge of them and make them do the same stuff, right? The whole concept was to host the room. And again, I was you know full of everything under the sun at 23-ish years old and 24, whatever. And, um, and you know, again, you just couldn't walk in the room and tell folks what to do. So, so I paid attention to that. And um, it's it's centered me for a long time and uh, changed the way I approach things. I made so many mistakes. Don't get me wrong. I made a lot of mistakes. But the fact was that those folks, independent of all my mistakes, made significant improvements in the organization. I mean, it was powerful what they did, both from listening to each other as three different teams trying to solve the same problems, but also they were cohorted with peers across the nation. So, so I realized that as a leader, my job wasn't to be in charge of them. It was to host a party, right? A room full of folks devoted to the same idea. And so my work became how do you get them centered around that idea and how to give them the information that helps them have the right conversation. You know, we do that now, right? I mean, we're using the operations model within uh, SSM Health and Cardinal Glennon and a different part of the organization. So I'm not in the room all the time, but but we have huddle boards. We ask the staff to get together each day, focus on real metrics that are real for them. And for them to translate the work into things they need. And uh, so funny, right? 25 years later, you're seeing this different version of the same idea being uh, led by different people and trying to get similar kind of progress. But like you said, it really centers around what they want to do. If they're not inspired to do it, then you may get it for a little bit. But but in general, people, it's going to stay and really help patients. It's got to be meaningful. It's got to come from the clinical teams. I'm not a clinician. So that's also very humbling, right? To be in a room full of people with more information than I can ever have. So all those things help level set, right? And then if you can be humble and uh, hopefully listen, then it hopefully makes the right space in the room to have an outcome. I'm learning so much as I get more and more into some of the nonprofit work that I'm doing uh, on a couple of different boards. Uh, But one of the things that becomes really, really clear to me is that although the title and the legality of organizations you know may be nonprofit some of those same tenets still stand whether you are for profit nonprofit whether you're a big organization whether you're a small organization one of my mentors 
told me many, many years ago, uh, he was, you know, region vice president of a major corporation. And I was a shiny, brand new 22 year old salesperson trying to figure this thing out. And, you know, he said, you know, Galen, the, the only difference between what I do and what you do is that the numbers are different. But other than that, we do the exact same thing. Talk just a little bit about some of the misconceptions that people have about, I'll just share with you. I thought, well, nonprofit has got to be easy to run, right? Because you're not actually trying to make money, right? You've got this air quote cause that's important to you. So actually making money and the metrics and operations and that kind of thing, they don't really apply. And the more I got involved, the more I started working with people like you and others who are saying, wait a second, (laughs) we still need money. (laughs) We still need operations. We still need operational effectiveness and efficiency. Boy, was I in for a rude awakening. So talk a little bit about how those metrics that we might follow in a for-profit situation you know, you still watch, you still manage, you still keep your eye on making sure that they're in place for not only the hospital that you run, but for some of the nonprofits that support the hospital. Sure. And we work with so many, right? Um, well, I think, I mean, Sister Mary Jean ran SSM Health for 25 years. She is a real legend of American healthcare, coalesced SSM into a health system and uh, she it, she didn't invent the saying, but she certainly used it a lot, apparently, which is no money, no mission, right? Or no margin, no mission. So, you know, when the founding order of sisters remind you about that, uh, it's a good start. One of the facets, so to your point, I mean, yeah, we, we have to have enough to reinvest in the organization, just like any for-profit business. The difference is uh, any incremental over doesn't go to shareholders, right? In, anything else we do, we expand programs and we create more services and so the net difference really is about that. You should be able to ensure that the dollar over whatever is needed to invest in the, the core operations and, and capital assets, et cetera, really does stay in the community. And I think that for me is the foundational part. And then, but what that means is the more that you can secure, then the more services you can offer. So you still have some of that same dynamic and pressure or desire. The other facet I feel like, and maybe you've seen this now too in your own journey, a lot of nonprofit folks aren't as passionate about progress related to money. There is a dynamic of, uh, certainly for the team that I arrived to host as we did our psychological assessments of everybody and team did some team building with the group. No one was centrally motivated by money. So trying to lead a group of people, that isn't their primary ambition is a little different, you know, to maybe what it was when I was in that revenue cycle company, right? Where it was really about bottom line, bottom line. And so I think that's a meaningful difference. So you do have to find different motivators. The last thing is, if you're in a nonprofit, you probably have an inspiring mission. There's none more powerful than ours. And with that comes a level of pride. And I think the easy, the thing that's maybe easier is it's easier to centralize the work around that mission. And SSM Health made a 13-word mission, right? 3,000 employees devoted time to come up with, you know, through our exceptional healthcare services, we reveal the healing presence of God. You can't leave that behind. And in any difficult moment, like a pandemic, you have that tool, that it's a shared understanding of why we got there in the first place. You can be in the community of faith, 
or you could just be inspired by how generous and and uh, supportive and community engaged we are, right? But you still get to the same place. And I think that's another powerful part of it is you get a diversity of people because you're joining, we're a Catholic organization. You might think, well, everyone's Catholic. No, absolutely not. I mean, Catholic is how we serve. Um, you know, it's not who we serve or who we are individually. So I feel like all of those facets are kind of unique to our share of the nonprofit work. It's been fun. To be honest, I was in nonprofits that were county and government-led too, right? Uh, so that was pretty different than this too. But um, but this really is a sweet spot for me and kind of fills my heart and spirit in a way that I'm selfish for while still accomplishing my career professional goals and all those other things. That really does lead me to how we all take a different path, but it's really it continues to still be important that we stay focused on what we're trying to accomplish in life. And very often, young leaders, young professionals, they get so focused on what's the next opportunity, what's the next promotion, what's the next job. And there really is no anchoring vision as to this is what I'm moving towards. And what's what's a path, what's a step that might help me get ready for that ultimate opportunity? It sounds like you you have been fortunate to kind of lock on to this is what I'm shooting, this is where I'm targeting, this is what anchors me. And you've been fortunate to uh, have some opportunities that, that have prepared you for that. What has that journey been like for you for determining what it is that you're put here on this planet to do? Oh, it's fits and starts. I mean, you know, I feel like you get called to work that you don't know you're called to do, right? So my original version was uh, to be a head of operations for a community hospital. It, it had nothing to do with safety net healthcare. It had nothing to do with children's healthcare. I was not seeing things that way. In fact, those opportunities arose without me looking for them in a lot of ways. Uh, for me personally, being prayerful and being centered, though, on um, trying to find that that deeper why was important. And so I felt like I tried to be listening for a calling, right? You know, I joined Jackson Health System in Miami. You know, it was presented to me. There was a couple of different things maybe I could help them with. And one of them was running the Women's and Children's Hospital. And it was instantaneous, right? I had a little bit of experience from a prior health system I was in, and it was something I was really excited about. You know, it was a completely different shade of the work I'd been doing and and it just touched me instantly. And um, so I think the work that I'd done personally, I mean, I thought what you just described was a brilliant mentoring moment for any young person, right? I, I love that. For me, you know, I didn't see it as that, but but I try to be thoughtful about those sort of deeper ideas. And so when it showed up, I felt like I was ready to listen maybe, or I just got lucky, right? But I did pick up on it and try to do the best I could with it. Even though I'm being in charge of a women's hospital, you know, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a lady, you know, what am I doing here? But yeah, to your point, you know, I think without that step though, I never would have had a chance to, to be a Cardinal Glennon. And, and, and in so many ways, that's the culmination of any dream I might've ever had about the impact I could have the potential to have in a community. For me, like you said, it's that mentoring moment of you just don't know, and it can't be about the next job. Yes, you know, maybe that's a piece of it, but what's the bigger why that you're looking for? So I love that. And um, I try and share that with other young folks myself. I mentioned you do too. And I usually tell them, just don't slow down a little bit. Don't hurry up. I mean, maybe I'm a little conservative about how to do this, but maybe don't get that job this year. You know, give it a few more years where you're at. 
Um, in fact, one of the things I would say is once you take that next level job, you're never getting back to that lower level job. If you don't learn it now, I mean, if you end up back here, it's not going to be good. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how much of that carries through. Each generation approaches things a little different also, but I'm pretty inspired by what this new group wants to do, right? We see a lot of them, a lot of learners around us. And I really like what I'm seeing from, from these younger folks, their, their passion and their orientation to doing good feels stronger than maybe it was for our generations, right? Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.